Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. All right, so uh, we are reading from Luke chapter 3, 23 through uh, 4, 13. And we're not going to read all of the names on the, the list up there. We'll just read a few of them. So follow along with me. Starting Luke three twenty three, the word of God. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And then Luke gives us 40 fathers. And then if we go down to verse 31, he is the son of David. And then if we go a little bit further to verse 34, he is the son of Jacob, the son of Abraham. And then skip down to verse 38, the son of Adam, and the son of God. For one, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Be seated. Let's pray. Father, this word is a holy word. It is a true word. It is a word from your own spirit, breathed out and written down for our edification. Father, in this word is truth and grace, love and hope. So, Father, I pray that you would give us attentive ears, willing hearts and minds to engage, to chew upon what you have given us. Father, I pray for the anointing of your spirit upon me, that what I preach is your word and not my own, that it would be pure and clear Father, that it would engage the mind and the heart, that it would glorify you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 
All right, so we are here the very first Sunday of Advent, and I'm very excited to be preaching uh, uh, an Advent series. Uh, the name of our series is To Us a Son is Given. It's taking that phrase, oh, I, I need to remind you, if you're children, second grade or younger, we have children's church in the back. So please, children, assemble. All right. Roll back. So, first Sunday in Advent, I'm very excited to be uh, uh, bringing together an Advent series. Uh, we're looking at this phrase in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which tells us that to us a son is given. And we all know that that son is Jesus. And I want us this Christmas to focus upon the joy of that gift, the joy of a son being given. Uh, all of the dads in this room know the joy of receiving their first baby, receiving the son or their daughter in their arms. I mean, the, the joy is just rivaled by nothing. And we are told that our Father in heaven has given us his son. And that should be something that brings us renewed joy every Christmas. As we talk about that phrase, to us a son is given, we recognize that that really spreads out into all of Scripture. Because from the, almost the very beginning page of Scripture to the New Testament, we have been told again and again through multiple promises of God bringing a son, a seed, to save his people. And so as we unpack the idea that God has given us a son, we are going to spend the next several weeks looking at the various sons that God has given us in Jesus, the fulfilled prophecy, the fulfilled sonship that he has given us. When we look at the book of Luke that I just read you, you saw that genealogy where Jesus is, is the son of all these different people. And his fulfillment of being the son of each of those individuals is a fulfillment of Scripture and is an area for us to receive joy and a gift of the gospel. So as we go through Advent, we are going to see how Jesus is the son of Adam, how Jesus is the son of Abraham, how Jesus is the son of Jacob, how Jesus is the son of David, and finally, how Jesus is the Son of God. He is all of these things. And being all of these things, he provides hope and joy for us that is unique. So we turn to the first son. He is the son of Adam today. And I think to understand what it means that Jesus is the son of Adam, and why that is so important and why that is a gift, we need to approach it from this particular angle. How many of you in this room have ever wished for a do-over? Raise your hand if you've ever said, I wish I could have a do-over. All right, we're close to 100%. I end most days with a want for a do-over, a want to have said something that I didn't say or to not have said something that I did say or uh, an opportunity to, to go to the gym, which I missed once again. There's many different times in my day, in my week, where I'm like, oh, I wish I had a chance to do that again. It seems like every single one of us resonates with the desire for a do-over. We go through life, we look back on it, and we see, ah, I wish I could do it again. I wish I could do it differently. I think that is written very deep in our hearts because in our hearts is a recognition that there is a right way 
And when we say, I need a do-over, we are recognizing, I haven't done it the right way. I did it wrong one way or another. This whole idea that there is a right way is telling us in our hearts that there is a thing called righteousness. And we are measuring ourselves against righteousness every time we are saying, I wish I had a do-over. Because we are saying, I wish I had done it right. And I don't think I did. When we have that feeling of a do-over, we are both yearning for righteousness and also recognizing that we lack it every single time. I mean, every single one of us ends the day recognizing that there is always a better that we could have done. Some of us this morning feel absolutely trapped. The question of a do-over is crushing I want to do over, but I keep returning to my sin. I keep returning to my addiction. I keep returning to my computer monitor at night to watch images I know I shouldn't. I keep going back to the anger, to the bitterness. I keep going back to the alcohol or the drugs. I cannot get out of it even though I cry myself to sleep. I wish I could be free. Others of you are hearing this word of do over and you're like, you know... Yeah, I get that kind of abstractly, but I don't really feel bothered by that. I don't feel guilt. I don't feel this falling short of righteousness. I'm not that bothered by the fact that some days I just blow it a little bit. Well, let me sharpen the question for you. Let's imagine that you are standing before God, and he is holding open, and he is holding in front of you, closed, the book of the works of your life. And he says, I am going to open this book and I am going to render judgment on the life that you have lived and what my word is will be permanent. And he asks you, before I open this book, would you like a do-over? Would you take that opportunity? Would you need it? You see, if you're saying yes to that, then the, the message that we are looking at today is so critical for you because the message that Jesus came to be the son of Adam is the hope that the do-over that we need, that we desperately need to be saved and welcomed by God has come. I've been thinking about the, the movie recently, Groundhog Day. Has anybody seen the movie Groundhog Day? Very uh, funny movie with Bill Murray. The idea of it is that Bill Murray is living in, his name is Phil, is living in the same day of his life over and over and over again. And he has to figure out how he's going to get out of it. But every day he goes to bed and he wakes back up in Groundhog Day, which is, for him, a sort of hell. When we recognize this sense of do-overness, this desire for do-over, we are putting ourselves in Groundhog Day. We live in Groundhog Day. Every single day, we ask, let it be better tomorrow, and we get to the next day, and we're like, I need another do-over. We seem trapped in Groundhog Day. And the question for us in this text, is there freedom from this? Do you want that freedom? Because as we look at what our text teaches today, we are going to see this main point, that Jesus has become the son of Adam, that restores fallen descendants of Adam who put their faith in his obedience alone. 
That is the good news that Jesus became the son of Adam. So as we see how Jesus becoming the son of Adam restores us, we are going to, uh, to, to discover that through going through this text and recognizing three realities that govern every member of Adam's family tree. And that's all of us. Let us look now at the first reality that governs us in Adam's family tree that, that makes us aware of our need for a do-over and yet at the same time our inability to get the do-over that we need. First reality is that we are relegated to failure by Adam's disobedience. We are relegated to failure by Adam's disobedience. And here we are going to focus on that long list of names, that genealogy that uh, Luke gives us of Jesus. Before we do that, failure. I mean, the word do-over, yeah, that's, that's not too hard to accept. Yeah, I need a do-over. But do you accept the logical implication that if you need a do-over, you're living in failure? We do not want to be failures. We want to be winners. We don't want to be losers. And so this idea of failure, does it, is it a word that you accept? Is it descriptive of you? Perhaps if you're in that category feeling like you just cannot get out of your cycle of sin, you say, yeah. But for several of us, I believe that term is probably offensive. Calling me a failure, saying that I am relegated to failure, that the very best that I can do is still not good enough? I mean, that punches us. That offends us. And yet, I think as we look at this text, that is going to be proven absolutely undeniably. I mean, let me ask you, why do you have feelings of shame or guilt or worry if you are not living in failure? Why do you look at greatness and want to do better? Why does the yearning for perfection haunt your heart if this is not something that describes you? You see, what we are going to be told here by the Bible is that because of Adam's disobedience, our first parent, we are relegated to failure. Now, in verse 38, at the very end of this genealogy, we are told that Jesus is the son of Adam, the Son of God, verse 38. When Adam was created directly by God, he was created to rule the Garden of Eden. He was created a king. He was a royal son. He was put in the Garden of Eden, which was perfect and pristine, which was declared by God very good. The Garden of Eden was actually the very goodness of the very good creation. Because it is where God specifically spent his time. Adam was born into this, a king, into a place of perfection, a place of, of perfect intimacy with God, of abundance, of wonderful relationships with his, with his perfect bride, Eve, of, of work that was satisfying, of, of a body that did not tire, it was, was, was ready to, to live and enjoy God's creation. 
able to reflect back to God his image. And Adam was given one rule to keep all of this going. I'm going to put one tree, the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the one rule is do not eat from the fruit of that tree. You can eat from all the other fruit, just not that one. One rule to keep the perfection of Eden for himself and for all of his descendants. But we are told before the the Bible gets to the third page that that one rule was absolutely impossible for Adam to uphold. As we read in our Advent reading, Adam and Eve disobeyed that one rule. They listened to the serpent who told them to doubt the word of God, to not trust that the word of God was good for them. And so as Eve looked at the apple, doubting the word of God, not the apple, but the fruit, uh, looking at the fruit, doubting the word of God, listening to the serpent, she realized that it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes and was able to make her wise, which is to make her like God. And she ate, and Adam ate with her. And we are told in Genesis 3-7 this terrible event. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Instantly, they recognized their guilt. Instantly, the need for a do-over comes upon them. That is the whole reason they have sewn these clothes of, of leaves upon themselves, is they're wanting to fix what has been broken. The, the, the spirit of the do-over is born at that very moment. But it couldn't be undone. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They have fallen from their perfection. And because of that, Adam and Eve lost everything. Immediately they go into fear and hiding. Immediately the the perfect relationship between Adam and Eve becomes twisted as Adam blames the woman you gave me. And then Eve blames the serpent. So there is blaming. There is pain and suffering brought upon the first couple. The ground is cursed. Dysfunction spreads out, and death and disease are sentenced upon Adam for breaking the one rule which God said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so death has now come into this perfect existence for Adam and Eve. And lastly, they are banished. They are taken out of the Garden of Eden. They are separated from the God who walked amongst them. This is... The fall. And all of Adam's family, you and I, live in this reality. We live in the reality that came from Adam's disobedience. We live in a reality of blaming, of pain, of suffering, of dysfunction, of death, of disease. We live in a wrecked and broken world. And we live in this world because of Adam's disobedience. 
which we are all living in and living out in our own way. The worst thing that came from Adam's fall was that he brought into humanity a sin nature, a a, a nature that is bent towards disobedience, that is bent towards self-gratification, that is bent towards self and away from God. We read that this is the condition of the human heart in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, when the Lord said, after he purged all of the wickedness from the flood and only had Noah and his family to deal with, said this, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There is a bent There is a bent away from good and a bent towards evil that is in every descendant of Adam's heart. And that has come because in some manner, Adam's disobedience has broken all of our descendants of Adam. Now, we can can speculate how that works. The Bible simply tells us that's the truth because Adam sinned we inherit from Adam a sin nature. We share with him the same desire to choose disobedience, and we do. Because of Adam's sin, and uh, theologians, when they talk about this, they describe it as the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is an unpopular doctrine. It's It's the understanding that because of Adam's actions, We are one, all fallen. We live in a fallen world. Something that is undesirable as it is cannot be denied. Means second, that we have all inherited his sin nature. Again, which is undesirable but cannot be denied. If any one of us uh, recognizes their need for a do-over, we are recognizing the sin nature is alive and well in us too. And third... Because of Adam's disobedience, we share in guilt and the sentence of death. The reason that we share in in that guilt is because it has been imputed to us. It has been reckoned to us as part of Adam's family that we share in that guilt. And again, theologians can spend a lot of time discussing how and why or where that happens and, and how it is brought about. But that is the simple fact of Scripture. When the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes this, it says this, Since Adam and Eve are the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin has been imputed to all human beings who are their natural descendants and have inherited the same death in sin and the same corrupt nature. That is the sentence that we are in. So with Adam and his fall, We have all joined Adam outside of the garden in a broken world with a sin nature and sharing in guilt. Because of Adam's disobedience, we have then been relegated to failure. The opportunity for perfection, the opportunity for righteousness is no longer within us. Now, Luke does a fascinating uh, thing to illustrate this. He gives us a genealogy. He gives us that long list of names that starts in Luke, verse 23, and goes all the way to 38. 
There are 77 generations that Adam record, that, that Luke records from Adam to Jesus. And what is he showing us in those 76 generations? He is showing us the story of our fallenness. Every single one of those generations came and died needing a do-over. Every single one of them was fallen. Every single one of them advanced and spread in their own unique ways the sin nature of Adam. This is the Bible's Groundhog Day, reading those 76 names. It, It will wear you out reading through all those names, every single one of them. The only thing I can tell you is their name and the fact that they were not the one. They were they were a sinner. They were part of the line of Adam, and they failed. There were great ones in there. There's, there's Noah, and there's David, and there's Solomon. They did great things. When we talk about being relegated to failure, we're not meaning that there, there was no good in them or there was nothing that they did that was good and impressive. When we are saying they were relegated to failure is that they fell short of righteousness. There are 76 names here to remind us that every single one of us born of Adam shares in his fall. In mathematics, there's a a thing in, in, in graphing an equation called the asymptote. I know this is nerdy, but this is very helpful. The asymptote is a line that you have on a graph that an equation, based on whatever variables are in the equation, cannot pass. It will approach it to infinity, but it will never actually get over the line of the asymptote. What Adam has assured us by his disobedience and by our inheriting his sin nature is that we live on the bottom side of the asymptote of righteousness. We can never cross over and be truly righteous. We can do good things here and there, but we can never break over that line. It is is fixed in in our code. And I know that that is a challenging thing for us to face. But does anybody have a life that can deny the reality of original sin? Does anybody want to stand up and say, I'm exempt from what you have just said. I have a life that has done it and done it perfectly. Uh, A secular newspaper, the Times Literary Supplement, wrote this many years ago. The doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, I would question that the only empirical is, is appropriate. But the point is, sin is so rampant and sin is so obvious and sin is so universal that we must all accept the verdict that we have been relegated to failure by Adam's disobedience. We are all living in Groundhog Day with no escape. Paul puts this succinctly when he says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as we look at this being relegated to failure, we must also appreciate and praise God that in the midst of the fall of Adam, there is hope. A promise of a coming one, a seed, an offspring, a son has been promised. In Genesis 3.15, we are told that, that uh, I don't have it in front of me, I'm sorry. Let me turn and find it for you. Genesis 3.15, uh, we are told 
this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the midst of the curse, in the midst of being relegated outside of the garden, God promises that somewhere down the line of the woman will come a child, will come a son, an offspring, who will crush the head of the serpent. Someday that child will come. But as we read in Luke, 76 generations have come and gone, showing loudly and clearly they are not the one. How long are we to hope in this promise? The 76 generations teach us the second reality that we must understand as being a member of Adam's family tree. We are reduced to believe in God's promise of an unfailing son. We've been relegated to failure because of Adam's disobedience, and at the same time, we have been reduced to believe in God's promise of an unfailing son. When we recognize the 76 generations and our likeness with them as fallen, as not the one, as not the people that have done it well enough that we don't need a do-over, we recognize that we have to reduce ourselves from any hope that we ourselves can save ourselves. We have to uh, face the fact, the humbling fact, that if we are going to be saved, if we're going to be delivered, it has to come from without It cannot come from within. To be saved, the genealogy of Luke is telling us a different sort of son had to come. And praise God, he has. To us, a son is given. To us, a son is given. Jesus is the promised one of Genesis 3.15. He is the offspring of the woman that we have hoped for. Jesus, or, uh, Jesus is the, the answer to God's promise. It is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Jesus is the 77th son. I don't know if that number is, is important, except to say at least this much. 76 sons came and failed before the son of Adam came that does not fail. God's faithfulness will outlast and outrun our failure. The 77th son brought the hope that we all looked for. It was the 77th son. It was Jesus who was the only one who had the clouds open above him and heard the voice from heaven say, This is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Every son before Jesus and every son after Jesus has not seen the clouds open and said, I am well pleased with you. That has fallen on only one person's ears, and it is Jesus. So I guess the question that we need to ask, or I will ask because uh, I'm a completionist, What happened to original sin with the birth of Jesus? How was Jesus spared original sin? Original sin cannot uh, infect Jesus for him to be 
the righteous one who fulfills all hope for him to break the asymptote that limits our righteousness. Well, that is why we have to look carefully at verse 30, or 23 again, where it tells us that Jesus was the son of Joseph as was supposed. That little phrase, as was supposed, is a reminder by Luke that there is something special about the birth of Jesus. There is something unique about how Jesus entered the world. As was supposed reminds us that Jesus became human and entered into Adam's genealogy through the miraculous means of the virgin birth. Jesus being brought into the world through the virgin birth testifies to three things. That he is divine, he is from God. That second, he truly is human. I mean, the, the, the mystery of the virgin birth is that, that he really was a baby born of Mary. He shares in uh, Mary's egg and Mary's DNA. All of that is, would be inside of the, the man Jesus. He was a real human, really connected to our humanity. He was truly human. But at the same time, his conception by the Holy Spirit assured that his being born happened without the stain of original sin. This is what seems to be meant by uh, Luke in the first chapter when he says, when he, when he reports what the angel says to Mary. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. I don't know exactly how the incarnation happened. I don't exactly know how that event happened. But what we are told is because of the virgin conception, because of the Holy Spirit's work in the act of bringing Jesus into the womb of Mary, the child was holy. Was holy. Was on the other side of the asymptote. Was free from the stain of original sin. Calvin comments on this. He says, we make Christ free of all stain because he was sanctified by the Spirit, that the generation might be pure and undefiled as would have been true before Adam's fall. So what what we get in the virgin birth is a son of Adam who is also at the same time a second Adam. He is born without original sin. He is born just as Adam was created without the sin nature. He is the only one that has come that can, that can lay claim to the, the role of the second Adam. So Christ, I know this is a bit technical, but this is, I think, fascinating and important to grasp. Christ is a son of Adam, as the genealogy tells us, but at the same time, because of the virgin birth, he is also a new Adam. He is a second Adam. And as the only second Adam, he is the only one that can provide us an unfailing son. He is the only one who can fulfill the promise of the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Paul comments on this in in the book of Romans in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus has come to be fully human and to be the second Adam so that those who receive the free gift of righteousness, which is to say, believe in the second Adam, receive righteousness. You see, when we, when we look at these generations and we recognize that the 77th generation is the fulfillment of God's promise, we are reduced to believe not in ourselves and our own ability to live righteously, to fulfill the life that doesn't need a do-over, but instead to, to recognize the sentence of death that we have inherited from Adam and be reduced, humbled, to believe in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. When we are reduced to believe in the second Adam, when we are reduced to believe in God's promise of an unfailing son, that is where the good news comes from. Because we, are, we, we discover that it is not my righteousness, but his righteousness that saves. And so by faith, we put ourselves in his line. Now third, we recognize after being relegated to failure by Adam's disobedience and being reduced to believe in God's promise of an unfailing son, we are seeing third, that we are restored to righteousness only by Jesus' perfect obedience. And here we look at the last part of Luke, of, of Luke 4, 1 through 13. How does Christ save us? How does Christ as the second Adam save us? Well, he has to undo what the first Adam did. And that requires two things. First, he has to obey where Adam disobeyed. And second, he has to pay for the disobedience that Adam has brought into the world. And so as we look at Luke 4, 1 through 13, we see that we are restored to righteousness only by Jesus' perfect obedience because he alone is the do-over of Adam's failure and he alone is the one who crushes the serpent, Satan. As the second Adam, Jesus was tempted, just like the first Adam. Luke chapter 4 comes as a parallel to Genesis chapter 3. We have just been told of, of Adam, and right as soon as we hear the words Adam, we are said that Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The reason is that that the, the writer of Scripture wants us to see that what Jesus is doing is he, is he is winning and conquering through righteousness and obedience where the first Adam failed through temptation. So as we go into the wilderness with Jesus after he has fasted 40 days, we see him facing a temptation. Whereas the first Adam and Eve were in abundance Jesus is in scarcity and wilderness, whereas Adam and Eve had all that they could want to fill. Jesus comes to his temptation in terrible hunger, 40 days without food. And so, Jesus, so, so Satan comes to Jesus where he is apparently weak to bring to him the temptation that will certainly bring the second Adam down. In his hunger, he says, why don't you use that power of God that is within you and turn some of these stones into bread? Satisfy yourself. Whereas Eve just saw that the fruit was good for food, Jesus comes to the temptation absolutely craving sustenance, 
40 days of hunger. Eve immediately took the the fruit and said, well, it is good for food. But Jesus resists the ability and the temptation to turn the the, the, the stones into bread by remembering and quoting Scripture that we are not to live on bread alone. You see, Jesus overcomes the temptation by showing that it is the word of God that satisfies him. So then Satan takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and says, I will let you have all of this. I will let you be a king. I will let you enjoy every enjoyment you want. I will let you accomplish everything you want to accomplish. All you have to do is worship me. Now, when Eve was in the garden and she saw the the fruit and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, the shimmer on the fruit pleased her, delighted her, offered her joy through the eyes, she succumbed and Adam with her. But when Jesus looks at all the glories of all the kingdoms, he recognizes Through his eyes, he is not tempted. His glory is in seeing God be glorified. And he rejects the kingdoms. So finally, Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, why don't you just throw yourself down and let God show the world that you are his son because he will send his angels to pick you up. Show that you are God's son. That is very similar to, to what Eve was faced when, when uh, the, the, the serpent said to, to her, well, you won't die if you eat this fruit. You will become like God. And so Satan is saying to Jesus, show that you really are God. Grasp for God. Become and show your, your, your wisdom in being like God if you are the Son of God. Take hold of your divinity. Demonstrate it to the world. Let everyone see who you really are, not just let everyone see who you are, the Son of God. And in response to that, Jesus says, you do not tempt, you do not test God. In all three temptations, he shows himself faithful and obedient where Adam and Eve showed themselves weak and succumbing to temptation. Where they fell, he stood. In sum, the temptations are a microcosm to show us that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. He is the perfect do-over. He is the one who is committed to fulfill what Adam, the first Adam, had lost. And so as we're told in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass of Adam led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the great exchange. All of the unrighteousness that we have inherited Through Adam, Christ pays for, I'm sorry, I've skipped ahead, I think. Uh, Yeah, 
That's the, that's the do-over. All his disobedience has been replaced by Christ's obedience. And yet, and yet, Christ still dies. Even though he was perfectly obedient. Even though he was the second Adam. Even though he was truly righteous and faithful through every temptation. He dies. That is the cryptic meaning of those words in 4.13 that Satan left him until an opportune time. Because we know that Satan will come back and seek to tempt Jesus one more time at the cross with the word, save yourself. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus, the righteous one, still dies. Why? Because to restore us, he must not only fulfill our obedience, he must not only be the second Adam who doesn't fall, he must also be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, who pays for the penalty of our disobedience. See, in Genesis 3.15, the words, he will strike your heel, he'll strike your head, but, and he will strike your heel, so the backwards, I'm sorry, are still in play. To crush the head of the serpent, the son must still take an injury, must still be wounded. His heel must be bit. And so that is what happens on the cross. He pays the righteous one for the unrighteous, all of our sins, by enduring the pain of the cross, the death of the cross, so that we might experience what is called the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one on the cross takes upon himself our disobedience, so that in him we might receive the righteousness that is his alone. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His death becomes our death so that in him we experience the life that was lost by Adam. So that we have been relegated to failure by Adam's disobedience. We are reduced to believe in God's promise of an unfailing son and we are restored to righteousness only by Jesus' perfect obedience to us. A son is given. To us, a son is given. Jesus is the son of Adam who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He fulfills our righteousness. Christ is our perfect do-over. So the first gift I want us to leave with as we think of Advent is that the unrighteous, you and I, who cry out for a do-over, are given freely the gift of righteousness. Because what if Christ has done for us? The free gift of righteousness is given to us by faith in Christ. And so by faith in Christ, these words become true to every person who trusts in Christ. In you, I am well pleased. The second son of Adam restores many sons to glory. Have you received this gift? Have you shared this gift? Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that even though we live in a failed line, even though we have done many things deserving of a do-over, that your love and your faithfulness reaches beyond the curse, offers to us your Son, who became one of us, born of a virgin, to live a perfect, faithful, and obedient life to the point of death, so that all that separates us from you, our unrighteousness, would be paid in full, and all that we need to be in your presence, his righteousness, may be perfectly and completely given to us by faith alone. Father, we thank you for this gospel. And we pray that anyone who is recognizing their need for a do-over, Father, that you would call them this moment to put their faith in this gospel, to trust in Christ alone as the son of Adam who fulfills the righteousness that we lack and secures for us the inheritance that cannot be ours by our own works, but only by faith in the one who has accomplished all things for us. We pray, Father, all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.